Chapter Seven of *The Hound from the North* by Ridgewell Cullum. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Lisa Reichert. Chapter Seven. Leslie Gray fulfills his destiny. It was early morning, early even for the staff of the Rodney House Hotel, and Leslie Gray was about to breakfast. The solitary waitress the hotel boasted was laying the tables for the eight o'clock meal. The room had not yet assumed the spick-and-span appearance which it would wear later on. There was a suggestion of last night's supper about the atmosphere, and the girl, too, who moved swiftly here and there arranging the tables, was still clad in her early morning frowsy print dress, and her hair showed signs of having been hastily adjusted without the aid of a looking-glass. A sight of her suggested an abrupt rising at the latest possible moment. From the kitchen beyond a savoury odour of steak and coffee penetrated the green baize swing-door, which stood at one end of the room. "'Is that steak nearly ready?' asked Gray irritably, as the girl flicked some crumbs from the opposite end of his table onto the floor, with that deft flourish of a dirty napkin which waitresses usually obtain. She paused in her work, and her hand went up consciously to the screws of paper which adorned her front hair. "'Yes, sir, it'll be along right now.' Then she continued to flick the table in other directions. "'I ordered breakfast for six o'clock. This is the slackest place I ever knew. I shall talk to Morton and see if things can't be altered. Just go and rouse that cook up. I've got to make Leonville before two. The girl gave a final angry flick at an imaginary crumb and flounced off in the direction of the kitchen. The next moment her shrill voice was heard addressing the cook. "'Mr. Gray wants his breakfast. Sharp, Molly!' Dish it up. If it ain't done, it's his lookout. There's no pleasin' some folks. I suppose Mr. Chillingwood'll be along directly. Better put something on for him, or there'll be a row. What's that, steak? That ain't no good for Mr. Robb. He wants pork chops. He never eats anything else for breakfast. Says he's used to pork. The girl returned to the breakfast room, bearing Gray's steak and some potatoes. Coffee followed quickly, and the officer attacked his victuals hungrily. Then Rob Chillingwood appeared. Leslie Gray was about to rate the girl for her remarks to the cook, but Rob interrupted him. "'Well, how does the bridegroom feel?' he asked cheerily. "'Shut up.' "'What's the matter? Cranky on your wedding morning?' pursued the town clerk irrepressibly. "'I wish to goodness you'd keep your mouth shut. Why don't you go and proclaim my affairs from the steps of your beastly town hall?' Gray glanced meaningly in the direction of the waitress standing in open-mouthed astonishment beside one of the tables. Rob laughed, and his eyes twinkled mischievously. He turned sharply on the girl. "'Why, didn't you know that Mr. Gray was going to be married to-day?' he asked, with assumed solemnity. "'Well, I'm blessed,' as the girl shook her head and giggled. "'You neglect your duty, Nellie, my girl. What are you here for but to sling hash and learn all the gossip and scandal concerning the boarders?' "'Yes, Mr. Gray is going to get married to-day, and I, I am to be his best man. Now be off and fetch my mutton, which is pork.' The girl ran off to do as she was bid, and also to convey the news to her friends in the kitchen. Rob sat down beside his companion and chuckled softly as he gazed at Gray's ill-humoured face, and listened to the shrieks of laughter which were borne on the atmosphere of cooking from beyond the bay's door. Gray choked down his indignation. For once he understood that protest would not serve him. Everything about his marriage had been kept quiet in Ainsley up till now, not because there was any need for it, 
but rob had acceded to his expressed wishes the latter however felt himself in no way bound to keep silence on this the eventful day rob attacked some toast as a preliminary while the other devoured his steak then gray looked up from his plate his face was cleared his ill-humour had been replaced by a look of keen earnestness isn't it a beastly nuisance that this is my wedding day he began yes i mean it as rob looked up in horrified astonishment i don't mean anything derogatory to anybody i just state an obvious fact you would understand if you knew all but damn it man you ought to be ashamed of yourself for saying such a thing you are marrying one of the best and sweetest girls in southern manitoba and yet why it's enough to choke a man off his feed chillingwood was angry don't be a fool you haven't many brains i know but use the few you possess now and listen to me a week ago yes a week hence yes but for the next three days i have some dangerous work on hand that must be done work of my department ah dirty work i suppose or there'd be no must or danger about it grey shrugged call it what you like since you've left the service i notice you look at things differently he said anyway it's good enough for me to be determined to see it through in spite of my wedding damn it there's always some obstacle or other cropping up at inopportune moments in my life however i wish i knew whether i could still trust you to do something for me it would simplify matters considerably rob looked serious he might not be possessed of many brains as gray had suggested although gray's opinions were generally warped but he thought well before he replied and when he spoke he showed considerable decision and foresight you can trust me all right enough if the matter is clean and honest i'll do nothing dirty for you or anybody else i've seen too much oh it's clean enough i don't dirty my hands with dishonest dealings i simply do my duty but your sense of duty is an exaggerated one peculiar i notice that it takes the form of any practices which you consider will advance your personal interests it so happens that my personal interests are synonymous with the interests of those i serve but all i require is the delivery of a letter in winnipeg at a certain time on a given date i can't trust the post for a very particular reason and as for the telegraph that wouldn't answer my purpose i could employ a messenger but that would not do either a disinterested messenger could be got at you i know couldn't be uh influenced if you fail me then i must do it myself which means that i must leave my bride shortly after the ceremony to-day and not return to her until friday more than two days hence that's how the matter stands i will pay all your expenses and give you a substantial present to boot just for delivering a letter to the chief of police in winnipeg i will go and write it at once if you consent rob shook his head doubtfully i must know more than that first i must know in confidence of course the object of that letter and secondly who is to be the victim of your machinations without these particulars you can count me out i'll be no party to anything i might afterwards have cause to regret that settles it then replied gray resentfully i can't reveal the name of my victim as you so graphically put it you happen to know him i believe and are on a friendly footing with him he finished up with a callous laugh rob's eyes shone wickedly by jove gray you've sunk pretty low in your efforts to regain your lost position i always knew that you hadn't a particle of feeling in your whole body for any one but yourself 
but I didn't think you'd treat me to a taste of your rotten ways. Were it not for the sake of Alice Gordon's chum, the girl you are going to marry, I wouldn't be your best man. You have become utterly impossible, and after today's event, I'll wash my hands of you. Damn it, you're a skunk. Gray laughed loudly, but there was no mirth in his hilarity. It was a heartless, nervous laugh. "'Easy, Rob, don't get on your high horse,' he said presently. Then he became silent, and a sigh escaped him. "'I had to make the suggestion,' he went on after a while. "'You were the only man I dared to trust. Confound it, if you must have it. I'm sorry.' The apology came out with a jerk. It seemed to have been literally wrung from him. "'Try and forget it, Rob,' he went on more quietly. "'We've known each other for so many years.' Rob was slightly mollified, but he was not likely to forget his companion's proposition. He changed the subject. "'Talking of Winnipeg, you know I was up there on business the other day. I had a bit of a shock while I was walking about the depot, waiting for the train to start.' "'Oh,' Gray was not paying much attention. He was absorbed in his own thoughts. "'Yes,' Rob went on. "'You remember Mr. Zachary Smith?' His companion looked up with a violent start. "'Well, I guess. What of him?' I'm not likely to forget him easily. There is just one desire I have in life which dwarfs all others to insignificance, and that is to stand face to face with Mr. Zachary Smith. Gray finished up significantly. Ah, so I should suppose, Rob went on. Those are my feelings to a nicety. But I didn't quite realize my desire, and besides I wasn't sure anyhow. A man appeared, just for one moment, at the booking office door as I happened to pass it. He stared at me, and I caught his eye. Then he beat a retreat before I had called his face to mind. You see, his appearance was quite changed. A moment later I remembered him, or thought I did, and gave chase. But I had lost him, couldn't discover a trace of him, and nearly lost the train into the bargain. Mind, I am not positive of the fellow's identity, but I'd gamble a few dollars on the matter anyway. Lord, I'd have missed fifty trains rather than have lost sight of him. "'Just our luck!' Gray exclaimed violently. "'Well, if he's in the district, we'll come across him again. "'Perhaps you will have the next chance,' Rob pushed his chair back. "'I hope so.' "'It was he, right enough,' Rob went on meditatively, "'his cheery face puckered into an expression of perplexity. "'He was well-dressed, too, in the garb of an ordinary citizen, "'and looked quite clean and respectable.' His face had filled out, but it was his eyes that fixed me. You remember those two great, deep-sunken cow eyes of his? Rob broke off as he saw Gray start. Why, what's up? Gray shook himself. Then he gazed straight before him. Nor did he heed his companion's question. A strongly marked pucker appeared between his eyebrows, and a look of uncertainty was upon his face. Rob again urged him. You haven't seen him? he asked. "'I don't know,' replied Gray. "'What do you mean?' "'I have just remembered something. "'I came across a stranger the other day. "'He was wrapped in furs, and I could only see his eyes. "'But those eyes were distinctly familiar. "'Cow eyes, I think you said. "'I was struck with his appearance at the time, "'but couldn't just realize where I had seen eyes like him before.' "'Then he went on reflectively. "'But no, it couldn't have been he.' "'Ah!' He broke off and glanced in the direction of the window as a jangle of sleigh bells sounded outside. "'Here's our cutter. Come on.' 
Rob rose from his seat and brushed the crumbs from his trousers. There came the sound of voices from the other side of the door. Some of the boys, said Rob, with a meaning smile, it's early for em. I believe this is your doing, said Gray sulkily. Rob nodded in the direction of the window. You've got a team. This is no one-horsed affair. The door opened suddenly and two men entered. Ah, here he is, said one, Charlie Trellis, the postmaster, with a laugh. Congratulate you, Gray, my friend. Double harness, eh? Tame you down, my boy. Good thing, marriage, for taming a man. You're not looking your best, said the other, Jack Broad, the telegraph operator. Why, man, you look as though you were going to your own funeral. Buck up. Come and have a Collins. Brace you up for the ordeal. Go to the devil, both of you, said Gray ungraciously. I don't swill eye-openers all day like you, Jack Broad. Got something else to do. So it seems, but cheer up, man, replied Broad imperturbably. It's not as bad as having a tooth drawn. Nor half as unpleasant as a funeral, put in Trellis with a grin. Gray turned to Rob. Come on, he said abruptly. Let's get. I shall say things in a minute if I stay here. That'd be something new for you, called out Broad as the two men left the room. The door closed on his remark, and he turned to his companion. I'm sorry for the poor girl, he went on. The most cantankerous pig I ever ran up against is Gray. Yes, agreed the other. I can't think how a decent fellow like Rob Chillingwood can chum up with him. He's a surly clown, only fit for such countries as the Yukon where he comes from. He's not particularly clever, either. Yes, turning to the waitress, the usual. How would you like to be the bride? The girl shook her head. No, thanks. I like candy. Ah, not vinegar. Nor, nor pigs. Broad turned to the grey-headed postmaster with a loud guffaw. She seems to have sized Gray up pretty slick. Outside in the hall the two men donned their furs and overshoes. Fortunately for Gray's peace of mind there was no one else about. The bartender was sweeping the office out, but he did not pause in his work. Outside the front door the livery stable man was holding the horses. Gray took his seat to drive, and wrapped the robes well about him. It was a bitterly cold morning. Rob was just about to climb in beside him when a ginger-headed man, clad in a pea-jacket, came running from the direction of the town hall. He waved one arm vigorously, clutching in his hand a piece of paper. Rob saw him first. "'Something for me, as sure as a gun. Hold on, Gray,' he said. "'It's Sutton, the sheriff. I wonder what's up.' The ginger-headed man came up breathlessly. "'Thought I was going to miss you, Chillingwood. A message from the mayor. Doc Ridley sends word that the United States Marshal has got that horse-thief Lamar over the other side.' You'll have to make out the papers for bringing him over. I've got to go and fetch him at once. But hang it, man, I can't do them now, exclaimed Rob. He's on leave of absence, put in Gray. Can't be helped, I'm sorry, said the sheriff. It's business, you know. Besides, it won't take you more than an hour. I must get across to Verdon before noon, or it'll be too late to get the papers back there. Come on, man, you can get another cutter and follow Gray up in an hour. You won't lose much time. "'Yes, and who's going to pay the damage?' said Rob, relinquishing his hold on the cutter's rail. The sheriff shrugged his shoulders. "'You'll have to stay,' he said conclusively. "'I suppose so. Gray, I'm sorry.' "'Oh, it doesn't matter,' replied Gray coldly. "'That's not your fault. Well, good-bye. Don't bother to follow me up.' "'Damn!' ejaculated the good-hearted Rob as the cutter moved away. "'Going to get married, ain't he?' 
said the sheriff shortly, as Grey departed. "'Yes!' And the two men walked off in the direction of Chillingwood's office. And Grey drove off to his wedding alone. He was denied even the support of the only man who, out of sheer good-heartedness, would have accompanied him. The life of a man is more surely influenced by the peculiarities of his own disposition than anything else. When a man takes to himself a wife, it is naturally a time for the well-wishes of his friends. This man set out alone. Not one Godspeed went with him. And yet he was not disturbed by the lack of sympathy. He looked at life from an uncommon standpoint, measuring its scope from the attainment of happiness by his own capacity for doing, not by any association with his kind. He was one of those men who need no friendship from his fellows, preferring rather to be without it. Thus he considered he was freer to follow his own methods of life. Position was his goal, position in the walk of life he had chosen. Could he not attain this solely by his own exertions, then he would do without it. The crisp morning air smote his cheeks with the sting of a whiplash as he drove down the bush-lined trail which led from the Rodney House to the railway depot. It was necessary for him to cross the track at this point before he would find himself upon the prairie road to the Leonville schoolhouse, at which place the ceremony was to be performed. The gush of the horse's nostrils sounded refreshingly in his ears as the animals fairly danced over the smooth, icy trail. The sleigh-bells jangled with a confused clashing of sounds in response to the gait of the eager beasts. But Grey thought little of these things. He thought little of anything just now, but his intended despoiling of the owner of Lonely Ranch. All other matters were quite subsidiary to this one chief object. Once out in the open the horses settled down into their long-distance stride. Here the trail was not so good as in the precincts of the village. The snow was deeper and softer. Now and then the horses' hoofs would break through the frozen crust and sink well above the fetlocks into the under-snow. Now the thick bush which surrounded the village gave place to a sparser covering of scattered bluffs, and the grey-white aspect of the country became apparent. The trail was well marked as far as the eye could reach. Two great furrows, ploughed by the passage of horses, and the runners of the farmer's heavy double bobs. Besides this, the colour was different. There was a strong suggestion of earthiness about the trail which was not to be observed upon the rolling snowfields of the surrounding prairie. The air was still, though keen, and the morning sun had already risen well above the mist of grey clouds which still hovered above the eastern horizon. There was a striking solemnity over all. It was the morning promise of a fair day, and soon the dazzling sunshine upon the snow would become blinding to eyes unused to the winter prairie. But Grey was no tenderfoot. Such things had no terrors for him. His half-closed eyes faced the glare of light defiantly. It is only the inexperienced who gaze across the snow-bound earth at such a time with wide-open eyes. The bluffs became scarcer, as mile after mile was covered by the long, raking strides of the hardy horses. Occasionally Grey was forced to pull off the trail into the deep snow to allow the heavy-laden hay-rack of some farmer to pass, or a box-sleigh weighted down with sacks of grain toiling on its way to the Ainsley elevator. These inconveniences were the rule of the road, the lighter always giving way to the heavier conveyance. Ten miles from Ainsley, and the wide-open sea of snow proclaimed the prairie in its due form. Not a tree in sight, not a rock, 
not a hill to break the awful monotony just one vast rolling expanse of snow gleaming beneath the dazzling rays of a now warming sun a hungry coyote and his mate prowling in search of food at a distance of a half a mile looked large by reason of their isolation an occasional covey of prairie chicken noisily winging their way to a far distant bluff might well be startling both to horses and driver a dark ribbon-like flight of ducks or geese high up in the heavens speeding from the south to be early in the field when the sodden prairie should be open was something to distract the attention of even the most preoccupied but gray was oblivious to everything except the trail beneath him the gait of his team and his scheme for advancement the sun mounted higher and the time passed rapidly to the traveller and as the record of mileage rose the face of the snow-clad earth began again to change its appearance the undulations of the prairie assumed vaster proportions the waves rose to the size of hills and the gentle hollows sank deeper until they declined into gaping valleys here and there trees and small clumps of leafless bush dotted the view a house or two with barn looming largely in the rear and spidery fencing stretching in rectangular directions suggested homesteads the barking of dogs life these signs of habitation continued and became now more frequent and now again more rare the hills increased in size and the bush thickened noon saw the traveller in an up-and-down country intersected by ice-bound streams and snow-laden hollows the timber became more heavy great pine-trees dominating the more stunted growths and darkening the outlook by reason of their more generous vegetation on the eastern extremity of this belt of country stood the schoolhouse of leonville beyond that the undulating prairie again on to loondyke farm leslie gray looked at his watch the hands indicated a near approach to the hour of one he had yet three miles to go to reach his destination he had crossed a small creek a culvert bridged it but the snow upon either side of the trail was so deep in the hollow that no indication of the woodwork was visible it was in such places as these that a watchful care was needed the smallest divergence from the beaten track would have precipitated the team and cutter into a snowdrift from which it would have been impossible to extricate it without a smash-up once safely across this he allowed the horses to climb the opposite ascent leisurely they had done well he had covered the distance in less than six hours the hill was a mass of redolent pine woods it was as though the gradual densifying of this belt of woodland country had culminated upon the hill the brooding gloom of the forest was profound the dark green foliage of the pines seemed black by contrast with the snow and gazing in amongst the leafless lower trunks was like peering into a world of dayless night the horses walked with ears pricked and wistful eyes alertly gazing the darkness of their surroundings seemed to have conveyed something of its mysterious dread to their sensitive nerves tired they might be but they were ready to shy at each rustle of the heavy branches as some stray breath of air bent them lazily and forced from them a creaking protest as the traveller neared the summit the trail narrowed down until a hand outstretched from the conveyance could almost have brushed the tree trunks gray's eyes were upon his horses and his thoughts were miles away ahead of him gaped the opening in the trees which marked the brow of the hill against the skyline he had traversed the road many times on his way to loondyke farm and knew every foot of it it had no beauties for him 
these profound woods conveyed nothing to his unimpressionable mind not even danger for fear was quite foreign to his nature this feeling of security was more the result of his own lofty opinion of himself and the contempt in which he held all lawbreakers rather than any high moral tone he possessed whatever his faults fear was a word which found no place in his vocabulary a nervous or imaginative man might have conjured weird fancies from the gloom with which he found himself surrounded at this point but leslie grey was differently constituted now as he neared the summit of the hill he leant slightly forward and gathered up the lines which he had allowed to lie slack upon his horse's backs a resounding chirrup and the weary beasts strained at their neck yoke something moving in amongst the trees attracted their attention their snorting nostrils were suddenly thrown up in startled attention the offside horse jumped sideways against its companion and the sleigh was within an ace of fouling the trees by a great effort gray pulled the animals back to the trail and his whip fell heavily across their backs then he looked up to discover the cause of their fright a dark figure a man clad in a black sheepskin coat stood like a statue between two trees his right arm was raised and his hand gripped a leveled pistol for one brief instant gray surveyed the apparition and he scarcely realized his position then a sharp report rang out ear-piercing in the grim silence and his hands went up to his chest and his eyes closed the next moment the eyes dull almost unseeing opened again he swayed forward as though in great pain then with an effort he flung himself backwards settling himself against the unyielding back of the seat his face looked drawn and grey nor did he attempt to regain the reins which had dropped from his hands the horses unrestrained broke into a headlong gallop fright urged them on and they raced down the trail keeping to the beaten track with their wonted instinct even although mad with fear a moment later and the sleigh disappeared over the brow of the hill all became silent again except for the confused distant jangle of the sleigh bells of the horses backs the dark figure moved out onto the trail and stood gazing after the sleigh for a full minute he stood thus then he turned again and swiftly became lost in the black depths whence he had so mysteriously appeared End of chapter 7